the Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to Leaders Playbook, where you'll discover what emotional intelligence is all about and how to raise yours to be a top performer in business. Now, here's your host, Dr. Rell. Welcome to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. On this show, we give you hands-on tools to improve the emotional intelligence for you and for the people that you work with. Our guest today is Marshall Goldsmith, and he has said the higher you go up in an organization, the more your problems are behavioral. And that's from his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. We'll introduce him and bring him in in a little bit. The questions for today that we're going to focus on are what are the best ways for leaders to initiate action? How do leaders anticipate obstacles and take calculated risks? And then when do leaders take too much initiative and are too achievement-oriented focused that may undermine their success? What should leaders stop doing? And what are the key actions leaders can do to change for the better? The answers to those questions are going to be the focus of this session. Hi, my name is Dr. Relly Nadler. I'm a psychologist and executive coach and your host today. And today our guest is Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Let me give you the introduction. Uh, he's a world authority in helping successful leaders achieve positive, measurable changes in behavior, both for themselves, their people, and their teams. He is a coach to top executives in many of the world's leading companies, a prominent speaker and educator, and author of many books and articles on leadership. Dr. Goldsmith has worked with over 70 CEOs and their management teams. The American Management Association named Dr. Goldsmith uh, as one of the 50 greatest thinkers and business leaders who have influenced the field of management. Forbes named him one of the five most respected executive coaches, and Dr. Goldsmith contributes regularly to a column in Fast Company. His new book, What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, is a New York Times bestseller and Wall Street Journal number one business book. We're going to bring him on uh, shortly, but first let me tie you back into some of the key concepts that we're talking about here uh, around emotional intelligence. So what we do know is that the key to being a star performer, and that is someone who's performing in the top 10%, is emotional intelligence. When we look at emotional intelligence, um, technical expertise, and IQ, emotional intelligence is kind of the key factor. Emotional intelligence is defined as understanding and managing yourself and understanding and managing others. We also know emotions are contagious, and leaders are the emotional thermostat of their team. If they're irritated, short, and terse, most likely their team is irritated, short, and terse. If they're calm, cool, and collected, most likely their team is calm, cool, and collected. We also know that leaders in the top 10% produce twice as much revenue to the organizations as managers in the 11th through the 89th percentile. One of the things that hopefully you're getting from this show and what we'll talk about with Dr. Goldsmith is taking micro-initiatives. These are the small actions you can take that can create a macro impact, doing a few things differently. We've also talked about the amygdala hijack, how that part of the brain can easily get hijacked and you can lose some of your cognitive functioning, lose some of your IQ points. We also talked about the mirror neurons that as humans we're wired to connect with other people. And the mirror neuron is the piece of the brain that really allows that connection. Every leader that I've worked with has underestimated their influence over their team, and as a consequence, they don't realize that um, they're under the spotlight 
24-7. And the consequence of that is they've probably underperformed, as have their team. On the leadersplaybook.com, there's a series of free tools. There's the EI Star Profile. There's a derailleur detector. There's a piece on empathy. There's the emotional audit. Um, today we're going to have a piece called Success uh, in Excess, and you can download these at www.leadersplaybook.com. So the focus of this show today is around achievement orientation and initiative. Let me just say a few words uh, about what it first is achievement orientation. Achievement orientation, um, going back to David McClellan in a landmark work, The Achieving Society, he wrote this in 1961 and started studying these competencies. He found that achievement orientation uh, was the competence that drives success of entrepreneurs. Studies that compare average to stars in the executive ranks find that stars display the classic achievement orientation. They take more calculated risk. They support enterprising innovations, and they set challenging goals for themselves and their teams. Some of the research that supports this, and this goes back to Spencer and Spitzner in 1993, found that the need to achieve is the competence most strongly that sets apart superior and average executives. In a study of the 100 wealthiest Americans throughout history, people like Bill Gates and, and John D. Rockefeller, they all share this competitive drive. And what that is, it's a single-minded passion for their business. We had uh, Dr. Goldsmith to comment on that in a moment. So achievement orientation, are you average or are you a star? The average performers create their own measures of excellence. They improve performance. They set challenging goals. And they conduct a cost-benefit analysis. Those are the average performers. They're meeting expectations. The star, though, does each of those I just mentioned but they also anticipate obstacles, and they take calculated risks. So is that you? Are you in the average or star category? And then we're also going to talk about a, a initiative, and leaders with the initiative competence uh, act bef- before being forced to do so by external events. This often means being very proactive to avoid problems before they occur. We know that in certain industries uh, that rely on sales, like real estate, or building relationships like in consulting firms, financial firms, initiative has found to be the key to outstanding performances. And we also know that what initiative means is going above and beyond the call of duty in your job. The famous uh, 3M post-it notes is a good example. The person who discovered that by accident um, brought it to his boss, his boss brought it to the marketing team, and they turned down the sticky notes, the post-it notes. And this is a company, 3M, who basically said that in five years, 50% of their revenue should be from new products. Well, they turned down this idea. Most people, the average performers, would stop with that. This individual and his boss decided to pursue it further. They spent their own money, and they had these post-it notes um, made up. And then they did a very smart thing. They distributed them to all the secretaries in 3M. They got all this feedback from them the social proof that these things were, were exactly what the secretaries needed. And then again, they went back to their uh, marketing committee, and it finally uh, got accepted. And we all probably have a uh, post-it note in front of us right now. So where are you as far as initiative? Average performers address current opportunities. They're ready to act, and they make extra efforts. That's the average performer. But then, like we're mentioning, the star initiates action for the future. 
And again, the idea is about 80% of the time, this is a habit for you. So we're going to look at these ideas of initiative and achievement orientation and how they're important, but also how these traits um, can get in people's way. Can they use them too much and maybe uh, curtail some of their their success? And so with that, I want to bring on um, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Let me give you his bio again, a, a world authority in helping successful leaders achieve positive, measurable change in behavior for themselves and their people. He has coached uh, top executives in many of the world's leading companies. He's a prominent speaker, educator, the author of many books. He's worked with over 70 CEOs. And in his new book, which we'll get into now, is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. He's a New York Times bestseller and a Wall Street Journal number one business book. Dr. Goldsmith, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. We're glad that we have this opportunity. You're certainly a, a leader in the field, and, and I followed your work for for uh, quite a long time. Maybe we could start off, give us a little bit of your background, how you got into working with organizations. Well, you know, a lot of it, like many things in life, was somewhat accidental. I got a Ph.D. at UCLA in organizational behavior. I was a college professor at Loyola Marymount. I was a dean when I was 29. I met a very famous man named Paul Hersey, of Hersey and Blanchard fame, developers of situational leadership. Paul got double booked one day and asked me, do you think you can do what I do? I said, I don't know. I was making $15,000 a year. He said, I'll pay $1,000 for one day. Now, this was uh, almost 30 years ago. That was a lot of money for a kid. Sure. I said, Paul, sign me up, buddy. I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. They were very upset when I showed up, yet I was very successful. They were very happy with the results. And they said, send him back. Hmm. Paul called me and said, do you want to do this again? I said, definitely. And that's eventually how I got into business. So you were doing that while you were at uh, Marymount until all of a sudden I imagine you got... <clears throat> successful enough that you left. Yeah, I, I left the next year. Oh, you did that? Next year, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, left the next year. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Marshall, because I know you have an interesting background, and uh, just either who or, or what have been your, your best teachers, and then we'll kind of get into more of the feedback around initiative and achievement orientation. Well, you know, I've been very fortunate. I had many really good teachers. Uh, I'd say some of them are Paul Hersey, obviously, and Ken Blanchard, who I worked with when they were we were all a lot younger. Then some of my other good teachers, Francis Hesselbein, who's a former national executive director of the Girl Scouts. Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he's ever met. She's been a wonderful teacher. <laughs> Peter Drucker, I was on the board of the Peter Drucker Foundation for 10 years, a fantastic teacher. Richard Beckhard was a great teacher of mine. Uh, Bob Tannenbaum was at UCLA. So I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people who have been, I guess, the good fortune of saying, I've worked with many people who taught me who are wonderful, and of course I'm a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. So I would have to say one of my best teachers is Buddha. Okay. And you've been uh, a Buddhist for quite a while. 30 years. 30 years. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's great. Well, this is uh, good to at least see who's been your influence, because I know you've been a key influence for me and a, and a lot of other people. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. So we're really talking about uh, initiative and achievement orientation. I thought this would just tie in really well uh, with your with your book because it's just um, exactly what you're talking about. But have you seen opportunities when someone's maybe used too much initiative that achievement orientation just kind of got out of the way? We're talking about it as a strength, but did they just uh, use it too much? Well, there's something I talk about in the book called goal obsession. And goal obsession occurs when we get so driven to achieve a goal that we forget about our mission. I'll give you three examples of goal obsession. One example, I'm working down on Wall Street. 
And the guy's just complaining because he works all the time. I said, how much do you work? He said, 80 or 90 hours a week. So I asked him, why do you work so much? He said, why do you think I work so much? I want to make money. <laughs> why do you need so much money? I've been married three times. Do you have any idea how much alimony you have to pay? <laughs> why have been married three times? None of my wives understood how hard I had to work. <laughs> so it's a sort of, you know, cycle. Yeah. Another example of goal obsession, a fantastic example, is the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh-huh. Uh, fantastic movie where you have a leader who becomes so obsessed with a goal, building a bridge, he forgets his mission, winning a war. Okay, great, great. Well, we're going to come back to that. Um, we're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. We're talking about uh, initiative and achievement orientation and his book, uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And we'll be right back. Line in business. Voice America business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadilocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors, cried the second. I hope it has a bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Homeowners, real estate investors, bankers, listen up and tune in to Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight, the show that breaks it all down and gives it to you straight. Are you at risk of foreclosure? Interested in buying a foreclosed property? Mark Bull has the answers to the questions you might forget to ask. Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight broadcast live on the Voice America Business Channel, Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can't afford not to tune in. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. This is Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance, and today we're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, one of the world-renowned executive coaches. And before the break, we were just talking about, you know, goal obsession, and you were giving us two examples Mm-hmm. Uh, about the Wall Street person and the bridge over Kwai, and I guess you have a third one. Well, the third one was some great research called the Good Samaritan Research, where he took uh, ministers at Princeton Theology Seminary, and he told them he had to rush across campus to give a sermon on the topic of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Half the ministers, they told they were 10 minutes late. Ninety percent of the ministers in Princeton Theology Seminary, when told they were 10 minutes late and racing across campus, uh, they confronted an actor, an actor played the role of a person who was hurt. Help me, help me, I may be dying, help me, help me. Ninety percent of the ministers in Princeton Theology Seminary ignored the pleas of a dying person Gee. in their haste to deliver a sermon on the topic of the Good Samaritan. Oh, wow. And the reality is, and so would we. Uh-huh. These are not bad people, they're yeah. good people. Yeah. Probably better people than we are. The thing is, if you take a successful person and you give them a goal, we get so driven to achieve our goal that sometimes you know, we forget about our mission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And goal obsession occurs. You see this all the time with people who work too much or people who just become so focused on the goal they alienate people around them, right. alienate their family and their friends. It's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, dealing with someone that I was coaching, and exactly, we didn't, I didn't use that term, goal obsession, but exactly that he was so fixed on solving the problem. In a sense, he kind of elbowed out to... Um, to colleagues or key stakeholders who really had some offense about it, and he didn't even realize he did that. He was just, you know, going for the going for the goal. That's right. So one of the things in, in your in your book, in talking about kind of these habits, you really came up with, you know, why is it so hard for leaders to change, and mm-hmm. and they're so successful, they're so hard to change. Maybe you can talk about. I know in the book you have these you know, these four beliefs that mm-hmm. many leaders have uh, about themselves. Well. I'll go through the four beliefs and talk about why each of the beliefs has helped us be successful and each of the beliefs makes it hard to change. Okay. The first belief is called I have succeeded. Successful leaders have an incredibly positive self-image. Uh, 85% of all my clients think they're in the top 20% of their peer group, 70% think they're in the top 10, and 98% think they're in the top half. <laughs> well, statistically, that just can't be true. Right. Uh, successful people tend to be delusional. We're not as good as we think. Mm-hmm. Now, the very fact that we believe in ourselves so much actually helps us perform better because it gives us self-confidence and the ability to take chances and try things. But it just makes it hard to hear negative feedback. Why? We all tend to accept feedback from others as consistent with the way we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. We tend to reject or deny feedback from others that's inconsistent with the way we see ourselves. The more positive we feel about ourselves, the harder it gets to hear negative feedback. The second belief is called, I can succeed. A fancy psychological term is a self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. Successful people believe we have the capability to make a positive difference in the world, obviously highly correlated with success. problem is people high in self-efficacy tend to fall into the superstition trap. What is this trap? I behave this way. I am successful. Therefore, I must be successful because I behave this way. Wrong. Every successful person is successful because of doing many things, right? In spite of doing some things that are stupid, I've never been anybody so wonderful. There was nothing on the in spite of list. Right. The third belief is I choose to succeed. Successful people believe I'm doing what I'm doing because I choose to, not because I have to. 
We do what we do because we have to. We are compliant. Do what we do because we choose to. We're committed. The problem with this is the more committed we are to a path, the harder it is to admit it's the wrong path. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, I've had the privilege of working with many CEOs. I've had the unfortunate privilege of working with four CEOs when it was time for them to leave. I said, it's over. Leave. Leave now. Leave with some dignity. I failed in all four cases. Uh-huh. None left. Two were put on the covers of national magazines. How easy is it for a CEO to say, I just failed? Incredibly difficult. Right. And the final belief is I will succeed. Successful people are optimists. The problem, and that's obviously highly correlated with success. Optimists do better. Right. The problem is optimists chronically overcommit. And one of the biggest challenges I have in trying to help people change is to help them avoid overcommitment. And the more successful we become, the more we tend to overcommit. So just not, not saying no and, and that idea that believing that they can, they can uh, say yes to everything and not realize what they're saying no to. And believing they can do everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, startup company I'm working with now, and I, I think they're going to be successful mostly because of the back and the shoulders of the CEO. I mean, he's, and that's exactly it. You know, he will be successful no matter what. And there may be some people, you know, left on the sidelines. Uh, well, he will be successful to a point. When the company gets big enough, right. then his back isn't strong enough. Yep. And I, yeah, I think that's very likely. So classic problem with entrepreneurs. They take the company to a certain point but can't get beyond that. Uh-huh. And the reason is they make it too much about themselves. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and that so, somehow they have to be a part of every every situation and, and being right. involved with what's going on. Well, that kind of leads us to the next uh, question that, that I thought was pretty interesting that you came up with. You know, the idea that successful people, you know, they, they're strivers, just like we're talking about. They want to do, 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 do. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming up with the idea that they need to stop doing things. Right. First, maybe before we get into into what those are that they need to stop doing, how did that, that evolve for you? Well, actually, that was inspired by Peter Drucker. As I said, I was on the board of the Peter Drucker Foundation for 10 years, and he said in one meeting, you know, I, he said, we spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. He said, we don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. And then he said, of all the leaders I've met in my life, and he met many, obviously, he said, half of them don't need to learn what to do. Mm-hmm. They need to learn what to stop. Mm-hmm. That's kind of inspired me to write my book. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. So, so half of them, you're saying 50%, you know, they already know what to do, but it's, it's the stopping piece and taking on too much. Well, yeah, and then, I, and then I got into what are some of the classic behaviors right. that get in the way of successful people. See, you're mentioning the top 10% of leaders. Right. Everyone I work with is in the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh-huh. And they still have problems. Yeah, they yeah. just sometimes have different problems. Uh-huh. For example, uh, the issue of taking risk and self-confidence. Mm-hmm. That's not a problem for the people I work with. Right. People I work with, you don't get to be the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company if you lack self-confidence. It just doesn't happen. Sure. Uh, that's a problem I see with some people, but not the people I work with. Mm-hmm. People I work with have other issues. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about you know what what are the things that you do see, and I know in your book you have uh, twenty of the of the bad habits that challenge for this interpersonal behavior. Yes, and um, let's just maybe highlight some of them okay. that stand out, and especially related to this initiative, related to achievement orientation. So one of them is is winning too much. Right. Well, winning too much. What that means is, if it's important, we want to win meaningful win, critical win, trivial win, or not worth it, we want to win anyway. Mm-hmm. We just like winning. It's very hard for winners not to win. Um, and I use a case study with my clients, and 
75% fail. Case study is you want to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your husband, wife, partner, significant other wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. You have a heated argument. You go to restaurant Y. Food tastes awful. Service is terrible. Option A, critique the food. Point out our partner was wrong. Mm -hmm. This terrible mistake could have been avoided if they just listened to me, 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 me. Option B, shut up. Eat the stupid food. Try to enjoy it and have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? 75% of my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. Right. What should I do? Shut up. Very hard for smart, successful people not to constantly win and constantly be right. Uh, and I, I think part of that, I'm, I'm laughing because it's a great story, but I think that, that winning goes to the head, and, be, and you may be an expert in your certain field, right. but it seems like it bleeds into everything, that now you're an expert about everything. You're not an expert at everything in the world. You're, you're, you're not. That's right. Right, but, but I think they think they are. So it's, it's almost like that same. It's the same beat that goes on that they take into other areas where it doesn't fit in in other areas. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's winning too much, and then uh, adding too much value. Well, you know, one of my clients, a coaching client, a man named J.P. Garnier, CEO, just retired of a company called GlaxoSmithKline, one of the world's largest drug yeah. companies. And I asked him, what do you learn about leadership since you've been a CEO? He said, I've learned a very hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. Mm. My suggestions become orders. He said, if I want them to be orders, they're orders. Don't want them to be orders, they're orders anyway. Yeah. If they're smart, they're orders. And if they're stupid, they're orders. My suggestions become orders. Yeah. I asked him, what did you learn from me when I was your coach that helped you the most? He said, you taught me one lesson. Help me be a better leader and have a happier life. I asked him, what was it? He said, before I speak, stop and breathe, and ask one question. Is it worth it? Uh -huh. And he said, 50% of the time, you know what I decide? Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No. See, adding too much value occurs. I'm young, smart, and enthusiastic. I report to you. I've got an idea. You're my boss. You think it's a great idea. Rather than saying great idea, our tendency is to say, that's a nice idea. Why don't you add this to it? Right. And the problem is the quality of the idea may go up 5%. My commitment to its execution may now go down 50%. Mm. It's no longer my idea. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for smart, successful people to realize that effectiveness in execution can be seen as a function of two things. One, what is the quality of the idea? Times two, what's my commitment to make it work? And we get so wrapped up improving the quality a little, we may damage the commitment a lot. And by the way, a lot of times when we're adding too much value, mm -hmm. what we're really doing is another thing I talk about in the book, telling the world how smart we're going right. And, you know, you mentioned you have a Ph.D. It's a classic problem with people who have lots of education. Yeah. We have to tell the world constantly how smart we are. Yep. Well, one of the, uh, we have this derailleur detector uh, in the Leader's Playbook, and, and one of the key ones is smartest person in the room syndrome. Exactly. You know, and how they can spend, you know, and I'm sure you've been in those meetings like I have. It, it, it can, you can spend all this time proving that you have two extra IQ points exactly. to somebody else across the room. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was the uh, adding too much value. We're going to come back after the break, and we'll talk more about some of these uh, key behaviors that get in leaders' ways. This is Leaders Playbook Tools for Top Performance, and we're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Line in Business, Voice America Business. Most
leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next-level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back, and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Before every word, there is a thought. Before every action, there is a thought. If everything starts with a leader, what happens when leaders around the world start to think and do things differently? I'm thinking the world will change. Evolve the leader. Evolve the company. Change the world. Join Susan Kavanaugh for Summit Speed. All leaders rise. Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Adding fractions is nothing. For real? Look, these are denominators. You multiply this one so that it's the same as that, then you add them up. Man, that's easy. Charles Bennett dreamed of returning to the old neighborhood as a teacher. But without money for college, only half of his dream came true. He's back in the old neighborhood. Well, enough math. I got to deliver these sandwiches. Please support the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A message from the UNCF and the Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. This is, welcome back to Leaders Playbook, uh, tools for top performance. We're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. We're going through, in his book, he has uh, 20 of the bad habits, challenges for interpersonal behavior. We've talked about winning too much. We've just finished talking about um, adding too much value. And so another one, and I'm just highlighting some of these, would be speaking when angry. Very important. This is, in, by the way, most of the things they talk about are not only important at work, they're important at home. And this next one is very, very important at home because uh, we blow it at home more than we do at work on this one. It's speaking when angry or out of control. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm a Buddhist, and oh, a few years ago there's a place in a monastery called Plum Village with a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Thanh. We were encouraged to meditate on a variety of topics. And one day the topic was anger. He said, think to a time in your life when you became angry and lost control of your behavior. I came up with a case study involving my daughter, Kelly. I'm very proud of my daughter. She's getting a PhD at Yale. She was uh, you know, star of the play, queen of the prom, president of the class. When she was 15, she did something Daddy wasn't so proud of. She acquired an article of jewelry called a navel ring, mm. a large, brightly colored navel ring, and there's no use having a navel ring if no one can see it. So she got a sleazy little outfit to highlight her navel ring. Well, I come home, you know, unfortunately the tattoos are temporary tattoos. I see these navel ring and outfit and tattoos. I start, you know, screaming, yelling, ranting, raving. In my little monastery, I meditated upon this event, and I thought, what was I thinking about? My first thought, her walking down the street and someone saying, what a cheap-looking kid. 
wonder who her father is. Mm. My second thought, my own friends. I'm amazed Marshall, if his daughter looked this way. Right. Who was I concerned about, her or me? Concerned about me. It was a deeper issue, her navel ring or my ego. It was my ego. Uh-huh. And, you know, the thing I've learned from this is when you get angry or we get angry, just take a minute, breathe, look in the mirror and ask a question. How much of the problem is out there? How much of the problem is in here? And 80% of the time when we get angry or out of control, the biggest problem is not on the outside, it's on the inside. Uh-huh. So that 80% is their own issues, and, and, and what is it like in this issue that you're talking about? It's really was your own ego. Oh, yeah, and, and another thing that's even more important than speaking when angry or out of control and the stop list, sending emails when angry or out yes. of control, complete disaster. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever sent an email when you were angry, but it's a very stupid thing. To yeah. Do. And, you know, a lot of companies have had huge liabilities because of negative emails. Yeah. And, you know, billions of dollars have been lost because people have done this. And in hindsight, they realized this was insane. Yeah. You know, uh, Marshall, one of the, the people we had on uh, was um, Dr. Marco Iacoboni, who's at UCLA, an MD, PhD, and, and uh, his whole field is these functional MRIs. And so we were talking about kind of the amygdala hijack, you know, is another way of saying when you get angry. Mm-hmm. And what I was really uh, interested in is how much cognitive functioning do we lose to try to get a number? Because I think, like uh, like you, I'm in front of leaders, and you can say don't get angry. Mm-hmm. But what we were able to do is he said you basically, as far as your uh, IQ points, lose one standard deviation, so about 15 IQ points. Mm-hmm. And so I think when I'm talking with someone, you know, we know we shouldn't get angry, but if you say this judgment you know, the cognitive prefrontal lobe just gets shut down, mm. you're operating with 15 less IQ points. Mm. And so that's why, you know, a lot of these decisions uh, don't turn out so well. So it's, it's a way to kind of get their attention or a different way to express what you're saying. Sure. Okay, so um, speaking when you're, you're angry, and then the other one is uh, failing to express regret. Very hard for people, at least many people, to apologize. And in my job, I have people get confidential feedback from everyone around them, and one thing they're asked to do is apologize for whatever they've done wrong. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're stubborn and opinionated and you get this feedback, you're going to stand up in front of everybody and say, i got a lot of feedback. Here's some things I feel proud about. Here's what I want to do better. In the past, I've come off as stubborn, opinionated, always trying to be right. If I've ever done that to you or the people around you, I'm sorry, please accept my apologies. There's no excuse for this behavior. Mm. We all screw up. And what's the best thing to do? We make a mistake, apologize. We want to blame somebody who's the best person to blame. Blame ourselves. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article about this called um, To Help Others Develop, Start With Yourself. And the first person we have to work on to leadership development is always ourselves. And the best thing is get in the habit of when you do make a mistake or we do make a mistake, apologize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, has anyone ever looked at you and said, you're not listening? <laughs> well, I'm sure they have. Yeah. Have you ever then said, what do you mean I'm not listening? And repeated what they said verbatim to prove they were wrong. Right. Well, did that dramatically improve your relationship with that other person? I doubt it. Uh-huh. Well, what happens is, you know, when somebody says you're not listening, what they really mean is you don't look like you're listening. You don't look like you care. And even if we were listening, how much of an I care about you message we're sending the other person? Zero. Uh-huh. The best thing when somebody says you're not listening, just say, I'm sorry. Uh, please accept my apologies. I'll try to do better. Because, you know, even if we were listening, we didn't look like we cared. Right. So start acting like you care. And I think when, when leaders do that, it really sets up the modeling. If, if they're not apologizing, just like we said earlier around the emotional thermostat, you know, nobody else is probably apologizing. Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. The leader has to play the role of a little prima donna. Everybody plays the role of a little yeah. prima donna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's just go through one other, just because I think uh, 
there's a case that I just heard about earlier today about someone withholding information. In this situation, it was the uh, CEO of the company that was withholding information from others, and that became an issue for one of the other leaders. Right. Well, I mean, I've seen this happen, unfortunately, recently myself, where, um, you know, I don't you ever heard of that term, big, hairy, audacious goals? Yeah, the big hag. Yeah, well, that can be a disastrous idea sometimes. It's a nice theory. Every waitress in Hollywood set big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Uh-huh. It didn't exactly work out. To me, this is sometimes an example of what I call faulty research. It's, it's called the survivorship bias. Uh-huh. And a lot of business research is subject to the survivorship bias. What that means is you interview mega successful people, and then you ask them why they're successful, and they tell you these things. Well, I set these big, hairy, audacious goals. What you don't interview is 12,000 failures that set big, hairy, audacious goals. I had one happen recently. Mm-hmm. I'm working in this huge company, and the number two guy to the CEO sets this big, hairy, audacious goal, and guess what happens? He's not making his goal. The CEO keeps coming back to him and says, you know, tell me the truth. What are the numbers? What are the numbers? Well, he was so driven to believe he was right, he wouldn't share the real information with the CEO. CEO committed to the analysts what the numbers were Mm. based on what he was told. They missed the numbers by 30%. The CEO is now gone. The stock tank price. And, you know, stock tank just, the stock price just tanked. Right. And uh, the reason is, this guy was withholding information from him that he needed to share with the analysts. And the reality of business is the truth is going to come out anyway, unless you're just able to print money yourself, right? You can't make up money that's not there. And if you withhold, if you withhold information today, you can get killed, especially from analysts, because right. the analysts have to go on what you say. And if you lie to the analysts once, their belief in you starts going down, and then they're going to take it out on you in the marketplace. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So, so it really becomes this, this trust issue, and, and it's a credibility, and it gets transferred into the stock price. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's look at maybe one more before we'll, we'll switch. And uh, your last one, which is excessive need to be me. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you see that getting in people's way? Well, actually, this is going to be subject of my not my next book, but my book after next. It's oh, yeah. going to be about personal identity. Uh-huh. And that's, I'm sure you've heard people say this, that's just the way I am. Yes, yes. I'm always shocked that otherwise intelligent people say, well, why aren't you listening? Well, that's just the way I am. I'm a bad listener. Why? Well, that's just the way I am. Well, you don't have an incurable genetic defect that's forcing you to be a bad listener. You don't have to be a bad listener. But as long as we stereotype ourselves and say that's just the way I am, that's the way we're going to continue to be. And it's very important to help people not only change behavior, which is how we act, but our identity the way we define ourselves. So I often challenge the way people define themselves. The other thing that's really important is to get people not to stereotype us. One, we stereotype ourselves, and two, other people stereotype us. And it's very hard to have people change perception because Mm -hmm. once people have a stereotype of who you are, that's just the way he is, they're going to view all of your behavior through that prism, and they're going to tend to see that. You know, one of the things that I think we talked about on this is, is what I call the snapshot management. And exactly, it's a stereotype. But people don't have a lot of time to figure people out, especially if, you know, if it's in a meeting when the snapshots happen. If four or five of the snapshots are the same, they say, that's you. That's you, you look the same. It's the same expression. That's who you are. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this, Marshall, from a coaching standpoint, if I found that they've had four or five of those negative snapshots, mm-hmm. it's an uphill battle because no one... Um, sees them change, 
you know, if they change, no one sees it because no. those old snapshots are so powerful. And they're just waiting. Everybody's just waiting. Yeah. And then one one negative experience seven months later triggers that previous stereotype. Exactly. And then it's, well, that's that's the way she is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, this maybe getting into one of the things that is tagged on to what we're talking about as far as um, the idea of, you know, initiating change for the better, what are some of the things that people can do? And I think that tags on to the, the snapshots, and like you're saying, seven months later, same thing happens. Maybe uh, the one of your ideas of what people can do to change is this telling the world and advertising. Mm-hmm. Because here's someone who's trying to make changes, but no one sees it, and then so as a consequence, they see them as they used to be. Well, in my coaching process, my coaching process is very unique. Number one, I don't get paid if my clients don't get better. Mm-hmm. Better is not judged by me nor my clients. It's judged by everyone around my clients. And all my clients publicly advertise or discuss what they're working on. It's not a secret. If any of my clients says, I'm not going to publicly talk about what I'm trying to improve, I just don't work with them. Mm-hmm. My clients publicly do it. They stand up. I mean, one of my clients is George Bohr, CEO of Toyota Financial Services, a great guy, stands up publicly and talks about, hey, here's the feedback, here's what I've learned, here's what I'm trying to improve. Michael Dell uh, on of Dell Computers, he's on video, standing up in front of everybody at Dell Computers and says, my name is Michael Dell, I've got feedback, here's what I learned, here's what I'm proud of. Here's what I need to do better. It's not always easy. I'm going to reach out and involve you and ask you to help me improve. Hey, he doesn't have to say that. Michael Dell could have said, you know, my name's Michael Dell. Right. I'm the world's youngest billionaire. Your name's not Michael Dell. <laughs> or he can say, what's the name of the company? Dell. That's me. That's not you. But what happens to people's respect for Michael Dell when he stands up and acts like a human? Yeah. Their respect doesn't go down. Their respect goes up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, um, kind of give me your thought on that, my thoughts on that, you know, why is that so important? First, it's so hard, and I think leaders say, well, I don't want to appear weak. You know, I have this image that I'm supposed to be strong. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can kind of give me your take on that. Well, that's an interesting theory, but I've done research from tens of thousands of people where people evaluate their bosses. And people whose bosses are willing to get feedback, talk publicly about what they're trying to improve, involve their coworkers on a regular and disciplined way and follow up, invariably perceived as more effective, not less effective leaders. Uh-huh. Okay. And I think it's that modeling uh, effect, and, and we'll come back to that. This is Leaders Playbook, Tools for Top Performance, and we're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. We'll be right back. Line in business, Voice America business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and 
brand influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Sing that bedtime song. Rock-a-bye, Rock-a-bye baby, by Newton's treetop. His first law of motion, make sure you won't stop. The same rules of physics apply to a ball. While gravity is a force that makes things fall. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in math and science. But it's never too early to set your daughter's future in motion. For some simple ideas, go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leader's Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. This is Leader's Playbook, tools for top performance. We're talking with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, the author of uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And we're moving into the last segment of what leaders can change and what can they do to zero in on some of them. And, uh, Marshall, we, we talked about uh, telling the world of advertising. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe before we get into that, if people are interested in you and your website, before we get to the tail end of this, mm-hmm. do you want to uh, give that and then we'll get into Yes, my website is, you can always reach me at Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, at MarshallGoldsmith.com. My website is www.marshallgoldsmithlibrary.com. Marshallgoldsmith.com is our business website. Marshallgoldsmithlibrary.com is my personal website. That website has all my materials and all of my interviews, articles, videos, audios. All that stuff is available for free. You can copy, share, download, duplicate, use with church, charity, nonprofit, business, friends, any way you want to use my stuff. I'm a Buddhist. My basic attitude is I'm going to die anyway. Might as well do a little good here. So um, I give away all my stuff, and I've had so far from my website, people have looked at or listened to 1.3 million things, and this is people from 188 different countries. So it's a huge... uh, that's so great, and the kind of the contribution you're making, I, and I've downloaded some of those and have used those with great success. So, thank you uh, for me, but also for those 1.6 million people who have used it too. Well, I like to thank you because to me, the real value add for me is the fact I talked to you and you mentioned to me you'd use my material and helped other people. To me, that's the whole point. I mean. To me, I can leverage so much more. If you read my material, or use any of it, and helps other people indirectly, I help make the world a better place. Yeah. So it's great for everybody. 
Well, and that's kind of really the purpose of, the, of this show is is to help leaders spread the tools. Every every uh, session, there's a tool that goes with it sure. that they can download for free. And um, just what you're saying now that people can use and go forward. So let's talk about, you know, when you're trying to help someone initiate change. In your book, you have a series of things. You have feedback. You have apologizing, mm-hmm. uh, listening, thanking, following up, practicing, feed forward. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe just say a little bit about feedback, and then we can we'll go down these. Well, in, in my clients, I'll get confidential feedback, and this is feedback from everyone around them. Uh, the higher up you go, the hard it, harder it is to get realistic, honest feedback. So this is all confidential. I personally interview everyone around my clients, and I ask them, what's the person doing well, what they need to change, what advice do you have for this person? I develop a profile. No one is identified individually, and I really help them follow up and Learn what what are the key behaviors going to make the biggest positive mm-hmm. difference? What do I need to change? Feedback does not help us change. Feedback helps us figure out what to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times people ask me, "Does 360 feedback improve performance?" The answer is, "Well, does a physical exam make you get in shape?" It's the same thing. Physical exam lets you know what you need to work on. You don't get in shape because you take a physical exam. You have to work out. Mm-hmm. Well, feedback is the same way. Feedback doesn't solve your problems for you; just identifies what they are. Mm-hmm. Okay, and when you do these interviews, how long are they typically? Uh, with the coworkers, yeah, oh, a half hour, forty minutes. And so they're either on the phone or in person, or either on the phone or in person. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to just so we have enough time to do the follow up one, and then we can kind of backfill. Sure. Um, so, talk about why follow up is, is so important, and, and in most leadership development programs, there's not real stringent follow up. Oh, in fact, most leadership development programs, I expand that. to Almost all leadership uh-huh. development programs, there, are, there is no follow-up. I mean, you know, huge majority of leadership development, the only people that get evaluated are the speakers or the cook who cooked lunch or the janitor who cleaned <laughs> the rooms. Uh-huh. Nobody's evaluating the leaders. And there, we've done research, again, from tens of thousands of people. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of it, you can just send me an email. I'll send it to you. It's okay. called Leadership as a Contact Board. It's 86,000 people. And our research is very compelling. When leaders get feedback, talk to people about what they've learned, involve them, and then follow up on a regular basis, they get better. And what's follow-up sound like? It doesn't have to be a long process. Follow-up sounds like this. You know, I just received feedback. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I feel very proud of. Here's what I need to do better. I'm going to ask you to give me ideas for the future and help me improve. Well, you know, over and over again. And leaders that follow-up get better, and leaders that don't do any follow-up tend not to improve. Uh-huh. And so what was the research that you had about that? I know it was, was it 70%? Oh, yeah. 30% of the people in our research did nothing. Uh-huh. They didn't talk to anybody. They didn't follow up. And they weren't because they're bad or evil people. They just get busy. They just get busy, and it just doesn't happen in their lives. They just did nothing. Right. And, you know, and you know, guess what? Their improvement scores sort of indicated they did nothing. Uh-huh. And the people that actually did the follow-up got better. So um, you do the interviews, you get feedback, you tell the individual, and then how often do you go back, when do you go back to the individuals? Because I know you have a kind of a checklist. Well, I go back, let's say I typically would work with a client for a year and a half. Uh-huh. I would probably talk to all of the coworkers during that period three or four times. I ask them to talk to coworkers much more frequently than that. You know, at least once a month is good, if not more. Uh-huh. And then it seems like, you know, for, for you to get paid, you have the final uh, evaluation. Yeah, and they, the simple scale has this person become more effective or less effective at the key behaviors, and have they become more or less effective overall as a leader or a coworker, and then how much more effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And then um, if there's change, then you get paid. If there's not change, you... That's right. And if there's significant positive change. I mean, I don't determine if it's significant enough. They do. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Well, so that's good, and um, that's the following up. And what about uh, listening? Well, you know, you know, I'm going to combine two here. One of them is listening, the other one is feed forward. Right. What I ask people to do is learn to ask for ideas for the future more than feedback about the past. And then when you listen, get in the discipline of, you know, sit there, shut up, listen, take notes, and just say thank you. Don't judge or critique. One of the things we do way too much when people give us ideas is we judge or critique their ideas. We don't listen to them. We try to prove they're wrong and get into arguments. What I suggest is you learn to ask for ideas, listen to these ideas, shut up, take notes, and say thank you. Never promise to do everything people suggest. Mm -hmm. Leadership is not a popularity contest. You can say, I can't promise to do everything everyone suggests. I can't promise to listen to people's ideas, think of all the ideas, and then do what I can. That's basically all you should promise. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm a Buddhist, and Buddha had a philosophy that said, only do what I teach if it makes sense in the context of your own life. Well, that's, that's the way the feed-forward process works. People give you ideas. You look at it as a gift. If it makes sense for you, do it. If it doesn't make sense for you, don't. Just say thank you. Mm-hmm. But you don't say stinky gift, bad gift, stupid gift. Right, right. I already have that gift. You know, just shut up and say thank you and thank do what you. you can do. Okay. Well, uh, that's good. And why don't you say a couple words that we're going to end shortly just about the uh, feed-forward. Well, I do this exercise, which I, you know, it's also online or send me an email, send you a copy of it. The feed forward exercise, which is a really fun exercise. I've done it with tens of thousands of people where everybody picks one behavior to improve. They have a one-on-one dialogue with as many people as they can. It sounds like this. I want to get better at behavior X. Give me one or two ideas for the future to help me. The other person says, I want to get better at behavior Y. Give me one or two quick ideas. Then, the rules are no feedback about the past, only ideas for the future. You can't judge or critique ideas. At the end of the exercise, I say, give me a few words to describe this exercise. One of the most common words, they say it's positive, useful, helpful, or fun. One of the most positive, positive, common words is fun. Uh-huh. I say, what's the last word you think to describe any feedback activity? Fun. <laughs> Yet people fun. see this as fun. Well, it's positive. It's focused on what you can do, not what you can't. It doesn't suck up too much time. And really, that feed-forward concept is the essence of how I do a lot of my coaching. Uh-huh. So you're really getting people moving forward, and I think uh, you know going back to what we know about the kind of the brain stuff. I'm just trying to link in some of that. People they're making their own links, they're getting feedback from people, and the more that they can get their own, uh, they can make their own links. And I think many times leaders try to say, here, here, I'm connecting the dots for you. You really right. let people connect the dots for themselves, make sense for themselves. Exactly right. Well, this brings us uh, to the tail end. There's a tool that goes with this uh, success in excess at www.leadersplaybook.com. And, Marshall, I want to thank you very much for this uh, enlightening interview and and for your time. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you very much. Talk to you later. Okay. Take care. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Leaders Playbook with Dr. Relly Nadler. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Rel, or if you would like to email him directly, visit his website at www.truenorthleadership.com. And be sure to join us next Monday for another episode of Leaders Playbook. We'll see you then.